Welcome to Managing Projects, the podcast for project managers in search of trends and insights. Join us as our guests dig deep into the thought-provoking topics that matter most to project management professionals. You can find all the episodes at managingprojects.ca. And now, here's your host, Ron Smith. Welcome to this episode of Managing Projects. Today, I will be chatting with Richard Kasparowski. Richard is a speaker, trainer, coach, and author focused on high-performance teams. Richard is the author of The Core Protocols, A Guide to Greatness. He leads clients in building great teams that get great results using The Core Protocols, Agile, and Open Space Technology. Richard created and teaches the course Agile Software Development at Harvard University. So welcome to the show, Richard. Hi, Ron. Thanks. So listen, I saw uh, one of your talks online, yeah, and I know that you uh, cite a few different sources for part of your talk, uh-huh. uh, and, and one of them was, was very interesting. Um, a source named Jeff Sutherland did a study on uh, productivity, and, and I wondered if you kicked off with what that study was about. Sure. Yeah. So I think you were watching a video of a keynote I did at the Agile Games Conference a few years ago. Yeah, that's right. So this is the this is the Jeff Sutherland who's the co-inventor of Scrum, uh, right? So Jeff Sutherland and Ken Schwaber, co-inventors of Scrum, and Jeff a couple years ago he wrote a book called Scrum: The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time. So his his thesis is that if if you're using Scrum, it's possible to have teams that are four times more productive, twice the work in half the time. It, it's it's sort of aimed at executives and leaders more than at practitioners, so it doesn't doesn't like get into details of how Scrum works, but it describes reasons that you might want to try it or, or why you might want to focus on teams and, and on, on team productivity and team efficiency. One of the things he cites is a study of uh, computer science students at Yale. Uh, he didn't actually, I don't know if he went to Yale. No, he did not go to Yale. He went to uh, the Air Force Academy, I think. So he cites uh, Joel Spolsky. From uh, I found uh, Joel's article he wrote on this. It's a blog from 2005. Uh, Joel was a student, a computer science student at Yale, and he's kept in touch with a teacher of a particular class that everybody in CS at Yale takes. As part of uh, as part of this class, the students they've got a bunch of programming problems. I think each problem takes that they get like two weeks to get it done, and uh, and students report how, how many hours they spend to get, the, to get each assignment done. If you look at the fastest students in that class, and, and okay, they're, they're Yale students, right? So they're all like pretty high, uh, pretty, pretty high in performance no matter what. They're like in the, in the upper half. These are the high achievers. Well, yeah, you know, it's, it's Yale. This is the, the high achievers out of the, the population of, of everyone who's college age, right? So they're like, they're like 90th percentile individuals, at least. Uh, these, aren't, uh, these aren't people who, who, who struggle to learn, hypothetically. Uh, in, in this course, in, in over years and years of doing it, so that they've been doing the same assignments over and over for, for like more than a decade, so that the, the, the teacher has a lot of data. And from the data set, what they know is the fastest students get these assignments done in one to two hours. And the slowest students take about 10 times as long. Right? So that's interesting. There's a big difference. Even, even when you're looking at people who are 90th percentile or better for, for individual performance, 
there's as much as, well, there's a, a five to 10 times productivity difference between people in the class. I've, I've noticed this as well myself with, uh, with depending on who's doing a piece of work mm -hmm. on a project team, you know, you have your superstars that can crank it out really, really quick. And you have your, the folks that just take a lot longer. Yeah. And, and what's cool about this, if you're measuring this, uh, this kind of stuff at work, it, it's, it's actually really hard to do single variable experiments where, where the only thing that's different is the person doing it. When we're doing it at work, there, there's all kinds of variables like the other people on your team or whether you've solved a problem like this before or when two people are, if, if you could possibly get two people or two teams to work on the same problem so that the only variable is the teams, there's, there's always other variables. So what's, what's interesting here is that it's the same assignments over and over. Every student is solving the same problems. It's the same teacher. There are very few variables aside from who are the students doing it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so then Joel makes, refine, refines the data even more. And uh, what he does is he says, well, that's, that's a wide disparity. Maybe some of the students actually aren't very good CS students, and maybe they, they switch majors or something, or they drop the course. So he changes it to look at the top quartile of the students in the class, the, the, basically the ones that get A's and B's, the, the, the students that are really successful in the class. And he drops the other 75% of people from the work. Uh, so this is like, now we're looking at only the good students in this course, only the best students in this course. And right. even then, oh, and, and they're the ones that, that have, uh, they've gotten good grades, they've passed all or, or, or almost all of the tests. Uh, they've, they've, they've submitted solutions to all the homework problems. They've gotten really good grades on them. So even in this, even in this subset of that population, there's still a wide disparity in how fast people get, get the stuff done. Uh, and the disparity is still like five to one. So the, the most productive individuals, even at the top tier, are five times faster doing the same work than the slowest individuals. So that, that's interesting. That's just a variation in individual performance. It seems pretty easy to determine a resource's productivity. But then did they get into starting to study team productivity as well? Yeah. And, and by resource, you mean a person. Uh, so Right. So I, exactly. Yeah, An individual. Yeah. Differences between individuals, uh, because that you know it's a it's a it's a it's a computer science class. They're grading people individually. In, a couple of chapters later in his book, Jeff Sutherland uh, shares a story of a, a a similar study at IBM, and the difference in this study is that it's about teams. Uh, and this is, you know, this is a little harder to do. There's a lot more variables. The, all, the, all the projects are different. There's different people on the different teams. But there's a large enough sample size that it seems like a pretty good, pretty good study. Uh, there's 3,800 software teams or software projects in this study. So it's a really big sample size. And they're all done by teams. And in this study, the best teams get their stuff done well, we'll say the slowest teams take 2,000 times as long to get their work done oh, wow. as the fastest teams. That's so crazy. Huge performance difference between teams, the, the fastest teams and the slowest teams. And it's two orders of magnitude bigger than the difference between individuals, right? right so for individuals at Yale, it was 10 to 1, and here it's 2,000 to 1. That's huge. Did they guess as to why? 
there would be a you know that much of an amplification of that difference in the in the book uh jeff doesn't share why i haven't found the the original publication of this like i've been able to find the original the original publication about the yale data uh, but the, the the point that that Jeff is making is if you want if you want really fast software projects if you want really high quality software projects focus on the teams not on the individuals right the difference between team performance is two orders of magnitude greater than the difference between individual performance so even if you had all the best individuals on a team they still might underperform by two orders of magnitude. That's really interesting. And of course, he's, he's talking about Scrum and Scrum is about teams working together. Uh, so he's, he's, he's making a case for the executives and leaders who are reading his book that, that Scrum or something like it, some way to get a team to work really well together is where you ought to be heading as a leader or member of, of, a, of a team working, on, working together, building something. It's funny. You're making me think of another time in my career when we were building a team and there was someone in the company who was seen as a uh, quite a leader yeah. kind of a guru you might say yeah and um what was discussed was do you add other gurus with them or will they just fight <laughs> yeah 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 and so anyway building that team um the thought was that you know if you had one you know stronger leader built around with some other people who are just going to come behind them and learn mm -hmm. as opposed to argue right um yeah. No. Wow. That's really, really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This, this really piqued my interest, right? And I, I've been, I've been interested in, in teams and, and helping teams be their most awesome for a long, long time, a couple of decades, uh, since I was, since I was a, a young software developer. So in your talk, you also cite Gama Sutra. Am I saying that right? <laughs> I, I ask that question every time I say it. I, I tell people that. Is it Gama Sutra? Is it Gama Sutra? Obviously, it's uh, Gama Sutra. Yeah, that's right. Gama Sutra. It's it's one of those. Maybe it's Gama Sutra. Maybe it's Gama Sutra. So it's a it's a website. It's a it's a periodical about video game industry, right? And uh, so I, I've. I taught a class somewhere and, and the, 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 the team leader asked me if I'd seen this study. It had come out like a, a couple of weeks before I, I went to teach this class for them. And it was, it was really cool, the study that they did. Uh, so in the, in the academic literature, when people are looking at team performance, you know, workplace performance, uh, they, they try to measure things very objectively and they're looking for different different characteristics, different behaviors that might correlate to success, to high performance. In the Gamma Sutra study, which they called the Game Outcomes Project, and you can find it on the Gamma Sutra website, they, uh, they took 200 different metrics, 200 different dimensions of team behavior, and they wanted to know which of those correlated to success in video game projects. They found, uh, they did this around 2014. They found, uh, they found a population of 120 different projects to look at. And uh, they, they, they came up with a set of objective metrics for how successful each video game was, as well as subjective metrics, all, this list of 200 different things that might correlate to success according to the academic literature. 
because you know they didn't want to have to invent new things to measure and they wanted to see if the literature was replicable they, they were actually doing good science replicating somebody else's research so what they found in the in the in this project the game outcomes project was that the one thing that correlated more highly to video game success than anything else was shared vision so that's really interesting uh, for for objective success they looked at things like uh, like financial return on investment. So some companies spent a bunch of money developing this project. How much money did they make back? Uh, so that's profit or loss. They looked at just this really simple metric. It, was the project delayed? Was the project canceled? Right. If it if it if it actually got to the end and they they could publish their game, that was a that was a positive outcome. Uh, they looked at critical success. So what did the critics think about it in reviews and in the press? And they looked at whether it met the company's internal goals, whatever those might have been, right? And they put that together into a scorecard of whether uh, one of these 120 projects was successful or not. And what they found was the thing that they correlated most was shared vision. They also found these four other things that they actually ranked all these 200 different things in order of correlation, but that the top five were shared vision, managing risks. Everybody buys in on decisions. They avoid death march kind of time crunching. And it's safe to take risks on, on these sorts of teams that are successful. And shared vision topped the list for the, for the Gamma Sutra study. So do you know, Richard, how they measured that? Um, was, it, was it interview style with each uh, resource to figure out whether they would agree? They hold a common yeah. shared vision? Yeah, so they, yeah. They, they replicated the methodology that's typically used in the academic research. And the methodology is, is typically a self-report survey from each member of a team. And, and what you want is a 100% response rate from all of the members of a team uh, to, be able to, to be able to measure these things in a team. Uh, like, you know, they, they would ask everybody on a Likert scale from strongly disagree to strongly agree. Uh, I, I believe the people on my team share the same vision. Or I believe, uh, or I feel safe when I'm with the people on my team. These sorts of things. Uh, this is the kind of survey that they give to measure these sorts of things, and it's it's a very uh, it's a very typical way to measure these kinds of things. You're bringing up some of these topics that I know are are also part of of your conversation as we go through this interview. Uh -huh. So so safety at work, yeah, uh, psychological safety. You you have. Um, you speak about some research that was done as well that came out of the, the Microsoft project teams. Yeah, and, and, and this has been replicated over and over, this kind of research. Uh, stuff about safety correlating to high-performance teams uh, originated in healthcare. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been replicated in many different industries on like thousands of teams uh, that, that teams that measure high on safety also measure high in performance. Uh, Google replicated this research a couple of years ago. Uh, they, they, they shared their story in the New York Times, I think exactly two years ago in February, uh, 2016. Similar kind of thing as, as Game of Sutra. Google has, well, everybody at Google works on a team. Some teams are better than others, uh, kind of like the IBM study. Some teams are better than others and they know it. They've got objective performance metrics for teams. Uh, what they what they wanted to know at Google, as a business, is these teams that are better. What are they doing that's different? And could we get all of the teams to 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 do whatever those most successful teams are doing? 
so they replicated the research. They called it Project Aristotle. Uh, they spent a couple of years. They got something like 200 teams to volunteer to participate in the research. They measured all the teams and all these different performance characteristics from the literature. And in the Google work, the one that correlated most highly to success or to high performance on teams was psychological safety. Right? So they got, a, they got a similar result that was in the top five in the Gamma Sutra study, uh, along with, uh, they talked about shared vision and stuff like that. These were also in the top five in Google's work. So they, they replicated the research uh, just like Gamma Sutra did. Uh, and for Google, for the teams at Google, the answer was psychological safety. Uh, so that's that's really interesting. If you want if you want a high performance team, this is kind of what Game of Sutra is saying. If you want a high performance team, you want shared vision. And then in Google's work, they're saying if you want a high performance team, uh, you want psychological safety. You want people to feel safe when they're with each other. Like it's safe to take risk. It's safe to be yourself. It's safe to admit you don't know something or that you made a mistake. So you can get the answer. So you can improve together as a, as a team faster. Basically, so you can learn faster. You also talk about um, a book by Frederick Lalu. Yeah. Is that how you pronounce his last name? I think so. <laughs> uh, reinventing Organizations. Yeah. So, so Frederick is this Belgian guy with this French sounding name. Uh, he talks about things like, um, well, you know, sort of like fiction of work-life balance. Uh, like people on awesome teams or people in high-performing organizations do they leave part of themselves at home when they come to work? Do they leave their work at work and go home? Not really. They kind of bring their whole selves to work and they bring their whole selves back home. Uh, and, and by doing so, these, these sorts of organizations seem to outperform others. Uh, so he has a bunch of case studies in his book, Reinventing Organizations, uh, different companies, different size organizations in a lot of different industries. And he's, he's looking at organizations that have a structure and uh, management system that I call humanistic or holistic. Uh, his work is, is based on integral theory. Uh, and in, in, in Lelou's work, he, he kind of organizes, he, 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 lays out, he lays out a scale for how organizations, for, for how people organize themselves historically all the way back from the first groups of humans to today. The most interesting parts of it to me are the, 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 the more recent organization styles because they're more relevant to us today uh, in, the, in the sort of creative work that, that many of us do. And I, 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 call, I call the two styles mechanistic or achievement-oriented versus humanistic or, or holistic. Uh, so he might call these, he actually color codes them. These might be orange organizations that that's more mechanistic industrial age sort of management structure versus green or teal. This is more humanistic, uh, humanistic, holistic, self-management, self-organization, uh, these, these sorts of things. Uh, and, and what he finds in his case studies is that the, the organizations that are, that are structured in a way that the people have more, more autonomy uh, they, they care about each other like they're humans. Uh, they, they talk about each other like they're people even versus resources. Resources is kind of like an industrial age way of talking about people. Uh, calling them people is, is, uh, is, right. is a humanistic yeah. way of talking about people. Just, just calling them people, uh, keeping them human. When you call them resources, it's kind of dehumanizing, like they're just replaceable. Uh, right. so, you know, this is like, 
I, I was just I was just looking at an old blog that I wrote, uh, and I called it uh, the Diamond Age. It was, it was sort of based on uh, Neil Stevenson's novel from a few years ago, The Diamond Age. Um, what would you do differently if you were running an organization and limited resources, scarcity of resources was not your problem? Industrial style management, mechanistic style management is, is kind of based on the assumption that, that there's scarcity and that we have to be really efficient to make sure we don't waste anything. What if there was abundance instead? Right. And, and there kind of is abundance, uh, people, humans for the work we're doing today, we're full of potential. We're full of, we're full of creativity. We're full of ideas. And, and it's up to us as leaders and people guiding organizations and, and, and leadership thinking within organizations to, uh, to, to offer these ideas that there is abundance and there are different and better ways of, of getting that abundance and, and, and getting the full creation of that abundance from a group of people, right? So the industrial era way of working doesn't really make sense if you're talking about abundance and creativity and, and like daily invention, which is what we do as, as software developers and technologists and, you know, and, and, and creative thinkers. I have been an Audible member for a long time. I'm taking a short break from the interview to let you know how you can support the podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. When we spoke with Mike Hayes a few weeks ago, he had several book recommendations. One of them was by Liz Wiseman. Her book is titled Multipliers. In this book, she talks about the contrast between a multiplier and a diminisher. The full title of the book is How the Great Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. You can download this week's recommendation or pick another audiobook for free and support this podcast all at the same time. How cool is that? You can do this by visiting managingprojects.ca forward slash audible. Now let's get back to this interview. So many companies today would have this sense of this industrialistic type approach to how they've even approached software development in yeah. this, the waterfall type model that everyone used to buy into. Yeah. And now, and now there's so much of a shift towards agile. Yeah. Um, the, the philosophy that they would describe is, uh, we are just going to take these smaller pieces of work and we're going to iterate through them and we're going to we're going to dig deeper in the in the moment of of the work yeah. but there's so much more involved in that there so and i think it it supports what you're talking about where if you look at the agile manifesto it it talks about compassion yeah having compassion for your uh, and I won't use the word resources just because of what you had just said. And I, I did use the word resources earlier in this interview, uh, f a compassion for your people. Yeah. And there's also another, there, there's a tenant that says, um, we believe that the people that are working on these projects are doing the best they can, having, having known, taking into account the circumstances that they're in. And, and there's this, that's this philosophy that you run these agile projects under. Um, it's interesting. So I'm, I'm also a co-host on another uh, podcast called mm -hmm. Ardent Development. And we have just released a, uh, a chat that we had with April Wenzel. Uh -huh. And she talks about, uh, she started an organization called Compassionate Code, Co Compassionate Coding. 
And this is what she's talking about is, yeah. is realizing this empathy in IT. And to your point exactly to say, we're not shoveling coal. We're not, right? right? It's not, you know, we have, we have a task that we're, we are going to do exactly the same replicated task like it's a machine mm-hmm. over and over again because the creativity and the, the ability to compete in the market at times means you are building these, you're creating something new. Right. I can relate to what you're saying wholeheartedly where, where yeah. it does seem like the industry is waking up to a, out of an old style of management that is very much uh, industrial. You know, we, we crank out code for a living. We do this, the exact same thing every day. Um, you know, what's interesting is uh, when you create something that really is for the first time, um, yeah. I, I've had the opportunity to be involved with some projects that we really were doing something for the first time. And it is a very different management mindset that you get yourself into. It's very much in the creative space you can't knock on the doors of everyone else that's done it before you to say, well, how did you do it? You know, what, you know, what difficulties did you run into? Yeah. And, and that, that's one of the things that's different about uh, our creative work versus say shoveling coal or whatever. Uh, Every time we do it, it's a little bit different. Even if it's something we've done before, it's, you know, it's, it's integrating that same kind of solution maybe with, with different code. So even if it's something we've done before, we're always doing it in a new way. It's not just stick the shovel in and get the same amount of coal out and stick it in the fire. It's, it's always a little different. Talk to me a little bit about core protocols. Yeah, okay. Uh, so um, I think you mentioned this book to me. It had, been, it had been on my reading list for a while. I actually just cracked it open this morning, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. So, you know, instead of thinking about industrialism and and how to get the most efficiency well how how would you get maybe maybe think about industrialism how would you get the most efficiency out of creative people and i i think the answer is to tap into the the fast brain of people so this is like closer to the closer to the brainstem versus the the prefrontal cortex Uh, so you know, the prefrontal cortex, this is the logic part of the brain. This is the, the part where we, we ruminate over things. It takes us a while to, to get the right answer. This is, this is the, the human part of the brain, the mammal part of the brain. It, it's actually the slower part of the brain. The, the more brainstem limbic system, sometimes people call it the reptile brain. Uh, this is closer to the top of the spine. It includes things like the amygdala. Uh, people associate this part of the brain with uh, with with fight or flight, with emotion and things like that. This is the fast thinking part of the brain. So what if you could get people to tap into that part of the brain and tap into that part of the brain as a team, not just as an individual? Because remember the, the difference between team performance and individual performance is, is like 2000x versus 10x. So if you really want mm-hmm. awesomeness, you want team awesomeness. What if we could get a team to tap into that fast part of the brain, that, that really creative without, without thinking about it and taking a long time? Uh, I think this is what the core protocols is about at some level. Uh, so the, the story of the core protocols is the story of this team that you mentioned at Microsoft and, and Jim McCarthy and Michelle McCarthy. Uh, they, Jim and Michelle joined, joined this team. It was the compilers group. It was something like 150 people. Uh, it was a mediocre team at, at the time they joined. 
And somehow it became a really successful team, like maybe the most successful team at Microsoft in its time, maybe the most successful software team in the industry at the time. So they built, eventually, they, they, as they transformed from mediocre to excellent, the thing that they built was Visual C++. Uh, it, it was like, for its era, the mid-1990s, it was a technical wonder. It, it, it did things that no other product could do. It, it, it kind of lowered the bar for people to be able to build applications and, and write code. It made it much easier than it had been. Uh, and it was so good, it put, it put other companies out of business. Like Borland was a competitor. Borland went yeah. out of business uh, because, that, because Visual C++ was just so good. Uh, Borland came back to life a little later, like at least the name came back to life. Somebody, somebody bought the name and started marketing under that name again, but it wasn't the same company. They actually, they actually went out of business. Um, Jim and Michelle had this experience of team awesomeness and they kind of wondered whether they could do it again. They, they felt like they got lucky, which is how I usually feel when I look back at my, my best teams in my life. Uh, I feel like I got lucky. So they, mm. they left Microsoft. They started up a team research lab and they tried to figure out what were the ingredients for really great teams like that? Uh, what they did was they, they, they would invite a team in to their lab and they'd do a five-day-long experiment. On day one, they would give the team an assignment and they would just watch for five days. And on day five, on day five we, we, everybody there could tell whether the, the team was successful or not, how, how good of a product they had built together. Uh, they did this five or ten times and they started to notice some patterns. And they, they documented these patterns using the, the pattern language idea was popular in the, in the late 1990s. So they documented these, these behaviors of successful team as patterns. And they called these patterns protocols uh, because a protocol is a way that humans communicate with each other, a very structured way for, for two humans to communicate with each other. Like think, think uh, diplomatic protocols, the way, the way diplomats talk to each other between countries. They're, they're very precise to make sure that there's no mis there's very little opportunity for misunderstanding each other. That's kind of what a protocol mm -hmm. is. Uh, as, as, as software developers, we think of that as the way, uh, the way my code communicates with somebody else's code. We use some sort of mm -hmm. protocol. Uh, and it comes from, comes from the way humans uh, communicate with each other to make sure everything is clear. So then the next phase of their experiment was to see if, you know, those, those teams in their lab that were successful, were they just lucky or, or could, could this be replicable? Could they teach these behavior patterns to teams and replicate mm -hmm. that success? And so for the next five or 10 teams in the lab, they, they did a little intervention. Uh, intervention is the, the psychology experiment word that, that means we, we do something a little different. And, and their intervention was teach the core protocols, teach these, teach these protocols to the teams on the first day of the lab and see what happens. And what they noticed was every time they taught these behavior patterns of successful teams to new teams, those new teams were also successful. So they, they, they knew where they were onto something here. Uh, they mm -hmm. weren't doing, they weren't doing this as let's say academically rigorous research because they didn't care about academic credentials or, or you know, they, they just wanted to know if they could find the ingredients of team success and do it on purpose. And they did, and they, they replicated this hundreds of times and, and other people have replicated it. So it's not just, 
if Jim and Michelle intervene, then you get successful teams. Other people have have taught these patterns to teams, and they so give me this... a few of these uh, protocols that that yeah, they would yeah. introduce into some of these teams. Yeah, and 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 as I describe some of these, you'll you'll see that they they closely correspond to the ideas of humanism or or holistic uh, holistic organizational structures. Uh, one of the starter ideas is uh, is is freedom or autonomy or opting in, right? So uh, check out is the name of one of these patterns. You know, every, every pattern has a name, and then and then some some context in which which it's applicable and a way to a way to do it yourself. So check out is the name of one of the patterns. Uh, check out you use it whenever you can't stay engaged with your teammates. And that might mean you have something more important to do. That might mean you. Uh, that might mean you just don't feel right at the moment with your teammates for some reason. Uh, it might mean that just you need just need to go clear your head. And and checking out works like this. You you just say I'm checking out, and you leave the room. So I'm I'm picturing say say a stand up as an example. You're you're a project yeah. manager. You're running the stand up in, in agile. Yeah. And you get all your team together and you're all standing in the room and as quickly as you can, you say what you did yesterday and what you're going to do tomorrow. Sure. And, and somebody in the corner says, I want to check out. Yeah. It's funny. I was having lunch with a friend of mine and I was telling him about this idea. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to, to debate with him how he would feel about it as a manager um, mm -hmm. because in some companies – what what pops into the manager's head is well that's part of your job you know yeah. Sally or Billy whoever wants to check out right now you're yeah. actually getting paid to participate you're in the room right now mm -hmm. um, and so some people will take will will respond to this negatively and, yeah, and say right, exactly so 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 talk a little bit more about like can you can you then yeah. challenge the person after well, or are you not supposed well, to challenge them because this is their there's, there's no challenge. There's no challenge yeah. because that would that would eliminate the psychological safety for being able to do it, right? Uh, so, so here's why it works. Oh, oh and that that uh, that idea of well, we're paying you to be at this meeting, so you have to stay here. You have to participate. Mm. That's mechanistic industrial era kind of thinking. Right. right. We've got we've got resources in the room, and we want them to perform. That's right. you know, I'm saying resources again instead of people. Uh, that that's mechanistic industrial age kind of management. The the evidence, you know, this is evidence based by watching high performing teams. The evidence is that on high performing teams, people opt in to be together. People are on that team voluntarily because they want to be, because they believe in the vision of that team, because they have a shared yeah. vision with the people on that team. Not because somebody commanded them to be on that team. Now, of course, you can command people to be on the team. But in the in the evidence from watching high-performing teams, they weren't commanded to be together on the highest-performing teams. They're together because they want to be. And this is this is kind of like the way at least half the teams at Google, for example, are formed. They're formed organically because people want to work together on a team. Uh, really? some, some engineer at Google gets an idea and they're 20% time and, and they're, they're really keen on the idea. They get some other engineer to join them on it. And, and that person's 20% time. Uh, they, they, th they think that they've got something good. They share it with, uh, and of course they're doing it together cause they want to, they share it with, uh, they find a project manager or somebody like that, uh, to, to join them on the team. 
then there's, nobody's commanding that project manager to join them on the team. They do it because they like the idea and they like these other two people and they, they think they got something that they could, that they well, could do together. And then they, it, they it just brings, try to recruit other people to join the team. It, it brings up a, a, a very pleasant feeling of what if everyone on your team, as they were driving into work, were choosing, you know, yeah. for instance, you're walking, you're walking to your next meeting, happens to be a stand-up, yeah. and your, your peer says, I have to go to this stand-up now. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. Or they're saying, I'm choosing, you know, I'm, I'm going to the stand-up. And, yeah. and, you know, the attitude behind it speaks volumes. I wonder what the percentile is of the people. And this was what the debate was over lunch with my, with my friend that um, we debated this. You know, I, I, I said to them, I actually think if the employees are choosing to be there, mm -hmm. that very seldom would that checkout happen. Um, because your 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 thought process is like I'm I'm choosing to do all this stuff. This is where I actually yeah. want to be right now. Yeah. So pe people often ask me like, what? Well, what happens when you when everybody decides to check out or everybody decides to pass on what's going on with the team? Well, that that's probably uh, it's probably behavior of people on a team who are forced to be together, who don't really have a shared vision. They're not really into the product they're building. They should probably all find a team they want to work with. Right. Instead of being, if, if you want, if you want a high performance team, then we want people who want to be there voluntarily, not people who are forced to be there. And, and if you want a lower performance team, then, then you can command people to be on that team. And, and when we know from the resource, what the result will be. If you took this approach though, you would find out so much earlier, you know, you oh, haven't yeah. gone through all the painstaking work that the team didn't want to be a part of and then right. realize, uh Oh, we're we're out of luck you would in that scenario where they said what if everybody in the room opts out yeah it, it gives you an opportunity to say oh i'm not understanding something's terribly wrong and and we right. have a chance to talk about that right in agile or lean we have this expression uh we, we we at least say i don't know if we all believe it but we at least say it's good to fail fast or we like to fail fast yeah. Uh, right. I so like so what if we could fail really fast with even the people who are on the team building the product? Uh, what if we could know by the end of the day whether this is the right group of people? Why do we have to wait six months and, and you know, waste all that time and waste all that money? Uh, let's just find out today if this is the right group of people. Um, I came across another protocol in, uh, in the research. Uh, uh -huh. You probably pointed it out in your talk or I, or I found it somewhere. Uh, was the sense of if you're holding a meeting, you're actually agreeing that you will be present. If you're if you're working with people, so for yeah. instance, you won't be sitting in a room where a meeting is happening and your laptop is going and you're typing something or you're checking something on your phone, but this is almost a, a team promise that you say, I'm gonna act this way. So I yeah. will be in the room, I'll be present and I'll give you my best because I'm yeah, here. Okay. And, and, and if you can't, you actually leave. Yeah, it's a it's a commitment to be engaged when present, and uh, and if you can't be engaged when present, that's when you leave. That and that that's that's what checkout is all about. Uh, checking out of the room when you cannot be engaged when you're present with your teammates. So if you're in the room, you you are saying I am I am fully engaged. You in got this it. You got it. My, your, your physical presence is a signal to everybody else on your team that you are totally there not just your body but your mind and your your your, your spirit your, your emotional self every part of you is there fully
So how do you gauge that? I, I heard some examples of you would actually have these words. I feel sad. I feel mad. I feel whatever. Yeah. And this is a this is a pattern that you would go through with the different folks that have just joined your meeting. Is that right? Yeah. So and this is back to Jim and Michelle's work, watching the high performance teams in their lab and then reteaching these patterns to, to additional teams. They noticed that on high performing teams, the, the successful teams in their lab, the people on those teams would share their emotional state with each other, no matter what it was. And they wouldn't get judged for it and nobody would try to fix it. They were, they were welcome for who they were and how they were, no matter what. Uh, so this is a characteristic of, you know, the evidence is watching high-performing teams. The characteristic is on high-performing teams, people share their emotional state and they don't get punished for it or ostracized for it. It's just part of who they are and, and we welcome who they are. So the behavior pattern uh, as, a, as a protocol is you just say, how you're feeling. You say, I feel mad and maybe you explain it. Or I feel glad and maybe you explain it. Uh, so the people on your team can understand you a little bit better in your, your current emotional state. Uh, and then when you're done, everybody says welcome. And, and okay, it's kind of corny that everybody says welcome after you say, I'm feeling sad about blah, blah, blah. But what happens when that when, when we do that with each other is it, it's, it's sort of a, it's a really nice acknowledgement from everybody on the team that they heard you and that it's okay that, that you're part of the team no matter what your emotional state is. Uh, so, so yeah, this, this check-in protocol, this is, uh, sometimes I call it the emotional check-in. Uh, it's a nice way to, it's a very effective way to re-engage with your teammates anytime. Do you find that there is a percentage of the population that says, oh, this is wonderful. I can see how this is humanistic. I love it. And there's this other percentage that says, ah, <laughs> well, why do we have to do this stuff? I, I wish we didn't yeah. do it. Like what, so yeah. what's your percentage of those groups? What's, what's been some of the reaction? Yeah, I'd say uh, if we, if we divided the world into these more mechanistic organizations and these more humanistic organizations, I think in Lou's book, he says something like 80% of today's organizations are more like mechanistic and, and maybe maybe 10 to 20 percent are more like humanistic uh this well and if you try to share something like this with the people who are in the mechanistic side of things which which is most people it just doesn't make sense to them no uh, and 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 we'll say that's okay uh if if this doesn't make sense you know nobody's going to force you to do it uh, if you're sort of at the cusp between mechanistic and humanistic, maybe you're open to this. And, and that's exactly who this, who this work, the core protocols is for people who are sort of at that cusp and, and who want to want to operate in a way that's more humanistic, uh, individually or with their team or with their whole organization. Well, I, for one would welcome the, the move away from the mechanistic organizations and into a humanistic yeah and, and, and there are there are a lot of people like you right it's a it's a big planet we've got seven and a half billion people uh 20 of a big number is is a big number so there's a lot of people who are open to this kind of way of working together yeah for sure well richard i i think i could talk to you all day about this stuff this is a this is a very deep topic if people wanted to learn more about your work or attend one of your sessions where would they find you online? 
Yeah, so visit my website, kasparowski.com. I've got a newsletter you can sign up for. Uh, lots of people who are interested in high-performance teams who are interested in this humanistic, holistic way of working. Uh, those are the kinds of people who subscribe to the newsletter. Uh, so if that's you, you know what to do. Awesome. Well, thank you for this. I've enjoyed this very much. Maybe I'll get a chance to see you in person at one of these conferences. I sure hope so. Very good. Thanks so much, Richard. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Managing Projects podcast. Find show notes and more at managingprojects.ca and follow us on Twitter at manage underscore P-R-O-J. If you enjoy the show, help us out by recommending it to a friend or leaving a review on iTunes. Talk to you next time.